Uh, it's so good to be with you, Sycamore. Uh, three years ago when my family first moved south from Philadelphia, our first worship service in Virginia was here with you, Sycamore, so you will always hold a special place in our hearts. Uh, and so I'm thrilled to be able to share the word of God with you this morning, uh, to get to speak during Missions Month. I love missions. I grew up in a church that made much of the mission uh, to our community and to the world. And uh, even so, as a young child, I, I had a bit of a skewed perspective on what that meant. You know, I, I thought of a missionary going out to the world as like a, the star of the debate team, going out to like get into all these rational arguments on the street and like win them. And then like, well, once I win that argument, they're a Christian now. Uh, but it was great. We were, uh, we were a church that was very closely affiliated with uh, Surge, which was World Harvest Mission at the time. And so as a teenager, I got to go on a couple of their trips. I got to go to South Hall in London. Um, and I got to see that, you know, people aren't actually rational actors. You know, you, you, you prepare all these like purely reasonable arguments and that's, that's not really what people engage with. We're storytelling people. It's narrative that really moves people. It's story that really moves people. Mission often looks like sharing a story that we believe is true, a story that's beautiful and compelling. You know, this has really hit home for me recently because my six-year-old son, Wesley, has, has some special needs and, and the, the pandemic was particularly hard on him. It was harder on him than my, than my younger daughter um, because of these, these challenges that he had. And so we had to start helping him out with certain things, places he would get anxious, places he would get scared. We had to start writing him what uh, is called social stories. There are these little books, they're storybooks that star Wesley. Um, you know, one particular one for him that was tough was like, Wesley goes to church because it's loud at church. And you know, what is a five, six-year-old supposed to do there? And they'd always have the kind of a simple, you know, Wesley gets in, the, gets in the car and drives to church with mommy and daddy. You know, church can be loud, but you can, you know, draw in your book. But the key part of all these stories, you know, we talk him through what happened and it was important for him to see what was gonna happen. But oftentimes the key part was the ending. And we get to go home with mommy and daddy. And oftentimes there's a part like, and we get a treat. <laughs> we li he likes that part of the story. The ending the movement of the story mattered for him. To know what was coming, to know what was happening, to know that at the end of the story, it was gonna be okay, was powerfully, and is still powerfully important to him. And so as we think about what does it mean for our lives to be on mission, to go to our communities and to the world, and to share what we have, it is important for us to be able to share our story and where our story is heading. So today I'm going to read from Micah 4. It's a prophecy um, about the latter days. And I want to, you'll read along with me. It's not going to be up on the screen, but it is in your bulletin or you can find a pew Bible. I'm going to read through this. And I want you to really listen as we approach what the hopeful end of the story sounds like. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law 
and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord of the Lord our God forever and ever. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and I will gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make a remnant to those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, and he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat to pieces many people and devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Heavenly Father, as we jump into your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us humility uh, to hear from your voice what we need to hear. Soften our hearts to your correction. Encourage us with the hope that you have promised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we read this, this is probably about 2,700 years old. There are going to be parts to it that are strange. There are going to be parts to it that are sound bizarre. Um, and as we deal with Old Testament prophecy, we also have to deal with the fact that apart from this kind of huge cultural gap, we also know something more than the prophet knew. First Peter instructs us that the prophets, you know, were, were guessing at some of the things that were to come, but we know some of the means, some of the manner to which the hopeful things he promises will come to pass. We have the testimony of Jesus, the Son of God, coming down from heaven to earth of his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the hope that is promised and guaranteed in that. And so as we read through this, we have to do a little translation, but we also have to remember that, that we can see some things in here that might not have always been clear. And we need to pull on that thread. So as we jump in here first, we're going to kind of break this down into three sections. Hope for the future, hope for the hurting, and then hope for the present. So let's start with the future, with these first five verses, as it talks about the latter days, as it gives us this hopeful vision of the kingdom of God. Now, I think we need to start with a little translation here, because I'm not, it's probably not particularly meaningful to you that a large mountain rises up high. In, in the, this, is an illi, this is an illustration that is particularly potent in the ancient Near East, where they used to put their temples on high hills and high mountains. In, in the cities of Babylon and, and the Middle East, they would build ziggurat-style temples that were, that were like 
man-made hills because the high places were where you went to worship. The higher the place, the more holy. So if God's hill is being raised up so it's monstrously higher than all the other hills, what he's saying is it will come to pass in the latter days, not that literally the mountain in the middle of Jerusalem will grow taller, but no, it will be so obvious that the Lord God is holy, the holiest, the real God on earth. It will become obvious. And then we see this language, the peoples shall flow to it. You may have passed over that. That would have been a really powerful line in the ancient Near East because that was the expression they used for Babylon. All the peoples of the world flow like a river to Babylon. The cultural center of the ancient Near East. I remember when I was just out of college in the early 2000s, it felt like New York was that. Like all my friends graduated, they had no reason to move there, but they couldn't. They could, like the, the flood of the river just kind of pulled them to that city. It's like, I must go and pay $2,000 a month for a small closet. Um, I, I have to. Uh, the pull of the culture was so strong, and that's how Babylon felt to all the nations around it, to all the places around it. Everything poured into it. But the, the text is telling us, no, now the holy place will be where God resides. The place where the nations come to is not that cultural touchstone, but no, they'll flow to the seat of God. And why are they coming there? What is this big hopeful thing? What's this big thing that's drawing everybody in? It's the law, obviously. Right? That's where you guys are. Like, you guys rejoice, like, yes, the law. I love reading Psalm 1 with people. It's like, I meditate and delight on your law. It's like, is that, is that you guys? Everybody were there? But I want you to see this. Like, we have a tendency to view that kind of strangely, but, but think about this image. God, the just, righteous king and judge. And you should know this. Throughout history, the, the chief role of a king is often to be the highest judge. So God is sitting and ruling as a perfect judge, as a righteous judge. And what does, what does a perfect fulfillment of the law and justice mean? It means peace. It means this beautiful image of peace that we see. That nations no longer need to even learn war. The instruments of war are turned into instruments of creation and growth. The, each and every person can sit under the work of their hands and feel no fear. It is this beautiful image. It's a beautiful end of the story. We have a tendency to view Judgment Day narratives, Revelation, passages like this in Daniel, with a bit of fear and trembling, with a bit of almost distaste. We don't, we're not looking forward to the end of the story, but read this. This is a wonderful ending of the story. This is an end to which we should be looking forward, like Wesley at the end of his little social story. I remember, you know, I'm a, I love, I love fiction books. I know as a pastor, I'm supposed to just love dry nonfiction books all the time, but I just want to read fiction. I love it. And, uh, and I love just, you know, I love getting recommendations from people and reading them. But, you know, the thing about a fiction book is the ending can really make or break the book. A great book with a terrible ending, whew, it's heartbreaking. And I remember there was a book years and years ago. I don't really remember much about the plot of the book, but I remember it's called Bel Canto. It was about hostage situation and opera was involved somehow, but it was it's kind of a delightful little read, you know? It was, it was really good, but everyone who lent the book out said, whatever you do, don't read the epilogue. 
It's only five pages. Just leave it out. It's a great book. So I, I've heard that from like five people. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to do it. And I read to the end of the book. I love it. It's great. Put the book down. But I just can't sit with it. How could it be that bad? It was a good book. The author is obviously good. I, I, I got to read it. It's just five pages. It was terrible. In those five pages, the author demonstrated that she had no idea why we liked the rest of the book. Random people got married. It was terrible. I just, from that day on, all I can remember, I, this book lives in my mind in infamy because the ending was so bad that it ruined the rest of the story. If you dread what God has promised for the future, that dread will well up out of you. As you think about what it means to share what you believe, if part of what you believe is a certain incoming dread, you know, Jesus tells us, out of the abundance of a heart, the mouth speaks, that will come up out of you. If you do not love the promises of God, that will come out. Spend time with this, though. Look at this. Look at the, the ending that God has promised. The beautiful future that he desires, that he is bringing to pass. That is an ending that we should be joyful to share. You know, most people in our culture, in our world, are no longer viewing the arc of history as a narrative, as a forward narrative. The much more common throughout history and throughout our world view of, of history is that it's cyclical. You know, it's the ancient Hindu samsara, you know, the Greeks and the, the Norse all believe that, you know, the, it went in these cycles of, of, of rising and falling. The idea that we are moving somewhere towards something better and good, that is a powerful and countercultural message that we get to share. And it's powerful to a certain group of people because history is cyclical with, cyclical with its ups and downs. It relieves certain people of certain pressure. Well, I'm just on the upswing right now, you know. I'm, you know, it all, it all just, wheel, the wheels turn no matter what we do. But if you're on the bottom of that wheel, it feels like you're being ground down by it. But if the arc of history is moving towards justice, who is that hopeful for? Who is that story powerful towards? God's hope is hope for the hurting. As we continue in, in this passage of Micah, he begins to talk about he, he continues this beautiful story by saying, and in that day, I'm going to gather the broken, the lame, the cast off, and here's an, a fun one, those whom I have afflicted, even those under God's judgment, I'm going to gather you up. I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to bring you into this place of justice. These are the peoples from every nation who are flowing to him. The lame, the cast off, the guilty. You know, as, as Christians, this should remind us this, of Jesus. This is a place where we, see, where we read this and we see, oh yes, Jesus, the great physician who came not for the, for the healthy, but for the sick. Jesus, who loved the least and the lost. Oh, I see him here. But we should not neglect how radical this notion is. We shouldn't let this story become taken for granted. Because let's take, 
for example, the, the person of Jesus. We can take for granted that the story of Jesus is that he came down, he stepped down from heaven to love humanity, to suffer for us, to redeem his people. There's another way that story could have gone, I assure you. The Son of God steps down from heaven, lives a perfect, sin, sinless life, is crucified and killed, and is resurrected to judge the people who did it. We can no longer say in that situation, you don't understand what it's like to live down here, God. He's like, I do, and I did it perfectly. Jesus could easily sit in perfect judgment over us. We would have no argument against him. But instead, he comes to gather the broken and the hurting to him and offer the inheritance that he has won. And he says, welcome, welcome, brothers and sisters, into this inheritance. Don't take for granted how radical that is. I, it's a silly analogy. This is a silly analogy, but I used to run a pickup soccer league uh, back in Philadelphia, and it was out in the deep suburbs, so it drew a lot of people because there just weren't any other good soccer games around. And you would get people from kind of exile communities and immigrant communities, and it was really good. But every once in a while, because it was a good game, you would get somebody who was way too good to come to the pickup soccer game. Um, there were a couple of them. But I remember this one Colombian semi-professional, and he was a great guy. He was a very sweet guy. But once we got playing soccer, his frustration level for how much we stunk at soccer was just, just boiled over. You know, he would make this perfect pass and be ready for the give and go, but like, I don't know, we're running around with club feet over here. Like, ah, can't get it back to him. And he would just lose it. And he was so good that even playing, even though you were constantly failing with him, you would often win if you were on his team. But the whole time, you felt like he was sitting in judgment of you. It's like, just constantly pointing out the things you did wrong. And to be perfectly honest, he wasn't wrong. But there was another guy, he was a low-level D1 player. It was also phenomenal. And he had, he came in and he would just be like, okay, you can pass well with one foot. I'll just make sure you're on the right side. And you can score all right. And you put your face in the right place. I can just hit the ball off of it into the goal. Um, and you would play with Kip and he would just like move you around and he would sort of like coach you in the field. And you always loved being on his team. And you always somehow did like the, my buddy hit a bicycle kick. I hit a diving header. Like you, you're like, wow, I didn't know I was capable of that. Like you're not, he, it was him. He just made it all work through you. Uh, and it was such a joy to play with him. He also was so much better than us. We take for granted it was a lot more fun to play with him. My Colombian friend wasn't wrong, though. We stunk. <laughs> we weren't, I wasn't, I was in my 30s, not going to get better, not going to get good enough. But boy, was it an attractive story to get to play with the guy who made me feel like I could hit a diving header. Wow, was that fun. Don't take for granted how beautiful the story of Jesus is. Don't grow numb to the excitement of God who took on flesh, not in judgment, but out of love. You know, we live in this era of kind of self-actualization, self-realization, um, where it's like the hashtag hustle, hashtag grind culture, where like you can make it, you know? It's like make yourself whoever you want to be. It, it trickles into all parts of our lives. 
our business, our personal life, our relationship life, all these things. And you know, there might be a couple people who feel like they're succeeding at it, but I bet the 99.9% of people, all it does is put shame, shame in front of your face every time you open up an app that shows you how much harder somebody's grinding than you. The hope of a rescue and an identity that you don't have to forge because you maybe are coming to grips with the fact that you don't have the ability to forge that. You don't have the ability to do those things. You cannot rescue yourself because maybe you're coming to grips with the fact that you're the one who got yourself in this mess. That maybe joining one more multi-level marketing scheme isn't going to do it. That maybe trying a little harder is just burning you out. Maybe the idea of a hope of a rescue, the hope of an identity, the hope of a God who loves you in the midst of pulling you out of this is the powerful message you need to hear and a powerful message that needs to be shared. Because when we combine these two things, a hope for a people in need of rescue that leads to a beautiful conclusion of God reigning from on high with perfect peace and justice. Oh, that's something that can give us real hope in the here and now. Because we look and we continue in in this, and, and this is where it starts to get a little, you know, the passage can get a little specific to the situation that Micah was preaching to. He's preaching to a nation that has just watched it's sort of sister nation dragged off into exile from which it will never return. The northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed. And one of the greatest conquerors in history, Sennacherib, is marching on Jerusalem. And the allies that, Israel, that Judah had put faith in have abandoned them. They are doomed. And Micah says, Oh, Prophets can be a little mean sometimes, but it's for a good point. Oh, are you, are you upset? All the things you've relied on besides God aren't there? Yeah. It's going to be hard in this world, in this broken and fallen world. The things that you have given power to have power. But, but, that power is not forever. Though you may be dragged into exile, the Lord will redeem you. Though you are weak, the Lord will make you strong. The Lord holds off judgment on Jerusalem for another 200 years. He stops a conqueror in his, in his tracks. But they will go into exile. You know, it's worth us as much as we can, putting ourselves in their position. First Peter, uh, I return to that well a lot, but it, it is a wonderful parallel uh, New Testament book for this. First Peter in Hebrews speaks to us as exiles, living as exiles in this world. Hebrews talks about us in, in sort of, as sort of a pilgrim people. This is not our home. Like the nation of Israel, it can often feel like we live in captivity, in a place that does not love what we love, that does not care for what we care, that maybe actively hates us, but maybe rather we were just gone 
and we will suffer. But you know what? The hope of Christ also informs this a little bit. What we know of Jesus informs this a little bit because, you know, before Jesus, you may be looking, what is the future? What is the pathway to, to verses one through five that takes me on the beltway around the suffering? How do I not be in Babylon? How do I avoid the pain and the trauma of this sinful world? Where is that pathway? That's the one I want. I'm confessing that to you. That's the one I want. But we have seen our Savior and our King not march around. He didn't kind of bushwhack a path around the suffering for us. He showed us the pathways right through it. And he says, pick up your cross and follow me. The, the path to the great hope that we offer goes right through the suffering of this world. You will survive it. You can endure it. Not by your own strength. And this is where we get to this last part, which is probably a little strange to hear. But by the strength that the Lord can, can rise up in you, the power of the Holy Spirit in you, the power of God in you. Because as we look at these last couple verses, as we look, you know, we like, okay, the plans of the Lord, all right. And then we see this verse 13, and it finishes, Arise and thresh, I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You're like, I'm not really sure how that applies to me. <laughs> now, my, some of it's like, are national animals not a bull? So maybe it's like, you know, think of like an eagle. It's like, ah, oh, I will make your wings like razors, and your talons titanium. But uh, maybe that's still, that doesn't really, doesn't really hit quite the same. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with me? Other than, I would much rather have, like, a Penn State or Eagles running back put that on their eye black as opposed to Philippians 4.13. This is the one I want to see them put on there, but that's a different story altogether. Um, what we see here is that the, the strength is not going to come from Israel's, from Israel's hustle, from Israel's great cunning, from Israel's great plan that they made. The people of God cannot make themselves strong, strong enough to flourish. Just as we need God to be our perfect judge, we need God to be our perfect strength. He will strengthen us. He will grow us. He will mature us. And it creates a fascinating and hopeful little message for us that in this great future, in this great hope that we have, we are not idle bystanders, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are participants through his strength in the victory of justice and peace. So as we, as we put this all together, as we sort of put our little, maybe our little social story together, <laughs> Christ welcomes us. We're the lame, the broken. If you didn't catch that before, we're the cast off, the ones in deserving of judgment. And Christ gathers us and welcomes us into his story, his good story, his beautiful story with a satisfying ending. 
But our participation doesn't rely on our own ability and power. But through God's power in us, we are meaningful in his story. I want you to hear this. This this speaks powerfully to a need that is felt throughout our world and our culture. There is a hopelessness, a fascination with death and finality, a nihilism and emptiness that is pervading. When, compare, when, we are, when we constantly have comparisons in which we fall short, put in front of us each and every day, we cannot help but see the ways in which we fall short, in which we are not good enough, we are not beautiful enough, we are not clever enough. But this is a story in which God says, my beautiful children, I will make you strong and beautiful and clever. You are my children. Not because you were these things, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. So let's be bold in proclaiming Jesus. The one who welcomed us into this story, who has, there aren't limited tickets to this ball. We can invite and invite and invite into this story. The gates are open. But to share this story, we need to love this story. If you want an application from here, here's it. You need to love this story. You need to fall in love with, this, with God's story. You know, when, when God gave out in Deuteronomy 6 his great commandment, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He follows that commandment with instructions on how they're to remember. Tell it to your children. Put it on your clothes. Put it on your doors. Put it everywhere. Whatever you do, don't forget. Remember is one of the key commandments throughout all the Old Testament. Remember, remember, remember. We need to put this story all throughout our lives. Earlier I mentioned that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We often hear that in a negative connotation. We often hear that in a negative way, like the, the doubt and the fear and the evil in our heart will overflow and speak out, but the same holds true for hope and joy. The more we trust and love our Savior and our Rescuer, the more time we spend with his word and his perfect future, the more the joy of that hope will overflow out of us into the communities and world and in our world, into the need, into the desperate need. Each one of us carries this true story of hope for a dying world. Amen? Let's love the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that we are welcomed into a story beyond our wildest dreams. Lord, it is hard to even fathom as we read those verses, the hope that you have promised us. 
It is hard to us, for us to imagine peace like that in this world. Lord, help us to meditate on that, to love your law, to love what is good, to love the hope and a future of justice and of peace that will never end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.